This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. It's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 109 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. In this episode, I have special guest Eric McKelkey, a senior high principal from Wyoming. In this interview, Eric shares his experience transitioning from being in the classroom to being an administrator, what surprised him, what challenges he had. He also shares some of the things that many teachers and therapists may not know if they haven't been in an administrative position before. So I thought it would be really valuable to get his perspective. We also dive into employee evaluations. If you are a teacher or a therapist and you work in the school systems, or really this may happen in medical facilities as well, um, you know that you might sometimes be evaluated by someone who isn't necessarily a subject matter expert in your content area. So this is something that happens a lot with school principals. They have to evaluate their entire staff. So this means that they are evaluating teachers that are teaching a content area that they did not teach. And they're also responsible for evaluating the related service providers like the speech pathologists, school nurses, social workers, psychologists. And sometimes that can be a challenge to figure out how to provide feedback in a way that's helpful, considering the fact that they have never been in the role of the person that they're evaluating. So he talks about how he makes evaluations useful despite all of these things, as well as some of the things that we may not realize if we've never been in a role where we've been responsible for evaluating staff. So it's really valuable to learn just what your school administrator might be looking for when it comes to evaluations, as well as some of the things that you can ask for when it comes to feedback and knowing how to get the support and mentorship that you need to do your job well. 
Before we get going in this interview, I wanted to share a resource for you if you want to learn how to put supports in place to support your students' mental, social, and academic health. All of those things can be supported by executive functioning supports, but as a member of the school team, you know that it's very difficult to know exactly how to intervene. That's why I've created a free training for related service providers and educators to share how you can support your students' mental health, their social skills, as well as their academic functioning. In this training, I'll share why some students experience anxiety despite going to talk therapy. I'll also share why some students struggle socially even though they're going to social skills groups, or why some kids still struggle behaviorally even though classroom management is being implemented. To sign up for that training, you're gonna to wanna to go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash EF leadership. Again, that's drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash EF leadership. Now, let's get to the episode with Eric McKelkey. Today, I am joined by Eric McKelkey, a principal from Wyoming. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, great to be on the show, Karen. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could get started off by you just telling everyone a little bit about yourself. So, you know, what's your background? What are you doing now? And just the whole kind of start at the beginning and tell us where you are now. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Montana. I was the son of an educator. Um, I have an identical twin who's also an educator. So it's definitely a a genetic trait in my, my family. <laughs> but um, I started off as a middle school language arts and social studies teacher. I've been an instructional facilitator, um, an alternative high school principal, assistant middle school principal, um, head middle school principal, and currently a junior senior high principal in rural central Wyoming. Great. So you've had quite quite the range of experience with working directly with students, but also being in leadership roles in a number of different settings. So yeah, I, I never wanted to be an administrator, honestly. Um, I think my first couple of principals, I may have been a bit of a pain as a teacher. Um, but things happened. And um, once I got in a, an a ed leadership program, I really started to see the impact principals had good and bad. Um, I think like a lot of educators, that's been my motivation is the examples of what I don't want to do as far as treating people and kids a certain way and also some great positive examples. So what made you not want to be an administrator originally? Like what was the drawback for you there? Well, (laughs) um, being a teacher and I also coached uh, three sports. I loved sports growing up. I wasn't a great athlete, but I just loved what I learned from sports. And I wanted to share that with kids as a coach. Um, you can kind of control your own little kingdom mm-hmm. and any problems you deal with as a teacher or a coach are usually ones you created. But when you become an administrator, you know, it was obvious that all complaints, all personnel issues, student issues, parent issues, community issues ended up kind of ending, you know, funneling through the principal's office. And it's like, man, why would you want to deal with everybody's problems? It just didn't look very fun. Yeah. I have had, um, when I was on the school administrator route doing uh, my director of special ed credential, I remember my mom was, she was, she was either a teaching assistant or a sub, but anyway, she was in this elementary building and she was chatting with the speech pathologist there and saying, oh, my daughter's a speech pathologist and she is interested in being a school administrator. And he was like, why? Why would you (laughs) want to do that? Is she nuts? But but yeah, the impact was what got me. Was there a tipping point for you where you were you realized, oh, maybe I do want to do this? Or was it kind of a gradual thing for you? Well, until I got in a program which I had to take because I accepted a a new position and the superintendent realized after I accepted this um, in Wyoming, we call it instructional facilitator mm-hmm. role. 
He said, wait, you don't have a master's? Well, you need to get one. So I, I started looking at what administrators do because before that, like as a young teacher, you don't want to see the principal. You don't want to go to the office. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to, you have your evaluations and observations, but other than that, it's like, keep your head down, do good things with kids, stay out of the drama and the, you know, the problems. But I started looking at what administrators do. And I think just like as a teacher, it was all about the impact you had on a class. I started to realize that a building principal could have that whole impact, that same impact on the whole school and on all of the teachers and all of the students and with the parents. So that was the, that was the draw. It definitely comes with problems. And like in your situation, if, if you get into special ed or, um, you know, one of the other related services, it's usually because you love working with kids. Why would you want to give that up to be a special ed director and deal with compliance? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, I had the same experience and what I did was, so I was in the schools, I was in a director or actually no special ed doctoral program. And there was overlap between the director of special ed credential and the, um, the doctorate in special ed. And when I started taking those classes, I thought, oh, maybe I do want to do this. And so with some of the roles, when you are on the IEP team and you are a case manager, I, in certain situations, would get very frustrated when things weren't happening a certain way as far as the way that I had to arrange services or just the whole IEP team and the way that we were working together. And I realized that I did have to do that And I had to take it upon myself to do that, even just not being in an official administrative position. And then it was like, oh, when you actually focus on this, it can make a big difference over here with what's happening directly for students. And that was that was what did it for me. Not, you know, again, I think that sometimes people think that the school administrators are like, you know, I people don't necessarily understand all of the things that they have to do on a daily basis. And um, yeah, I, I'm curious if there was something that like, what was different when you made the transition from teacher to administrator, what things surprised you about the role of being in a leadership position? It felt a lot like being a first year teacher. Mm -hmm. I came in confident believing in my own abilities to do the job and the reality of the job compared to what I was prepared for was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt I, I had a great master's program and a great internship experience and stayed in the district that I had taught in when I became an administrator. So I felt like I, I had my feet under me, but there were so many things, usually problems that I had no idea administrators dealt with. Mm-hmm. And there was no manual. There was no, um, you know, book on, well, when this happens, do this. And I, I definitely felt less prepared that first year. It was, it was really a struggle. And looking back on it, I, I also recognize, oh man, there were so many things that I could have handled better, but I just yeah. didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I did the best I knew how and similar to being a first year first year teacher where you're you're really focused on yourself and being prepared and being organized and trying to take care of business in the classroom um but kind of that imposter syndrome yeah i really remember it took until about end of year 2 maybe halfway through year 3 as an administrator i felt like i wasn't pretending to be a leader anymore. Like even telling people, yes, you know, Hey, I'm the principal felt like I was, (laughs) I was like, uh, still in someone's identity. I wasn't confident in myself. And and I really felt like, man, any day they're going to find out, I don't know what I'm doing and make me go back to being a teacher. (laughs) Yeah. I've thought about that when a couple of times, you know, I I'll hear things in 
professional groups I'm in where it's, oh, we have a new principal this year and they're telling me to do this, this, and this, and it doesn't make sense. And, and I just wonder, I wonder what would happen if you just went and talked to them and, you know, maybe had an, like a conversation with them and share a little bit about what you do. And just, I I always think, you know, they probably are telling you to do that because they're just, they're in a new principal job. They're trying to figure out the lay of the land. They're they're probably really not thinking about you as specifically as you think or, or whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. that's always my thought. What, I mean, what are some specific problems that came up for you that you never would have realized when you were in the classroom working directly with students? Um, probably the most stressful and, and worrying for me were, like personnel issues. Mm-hmm. Um, as a teacher, you really only see your colleagues in the hallway and in the teacher's lounge and in staff meetings. And you kind of assume everybody else teaches like you and, you know, does what you do. But when you become an administrator, you see the spectrum of professionalism and, you know, organization and putting work in and how kids are treated in the school. You see a lot of great examples of that, but then you see some really poor examples and those situations were difficult. And I, I felt pretty unprepared, you know, like, man, what do I do? This teacher's doing this and that shouldn't really happen. And how do I handle it? And trying to, trying to find a balance of, you know, growing teachers and, and, giving teachers feedback, but also not tolerating non-negotiable behaviors, adult behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because I mean, now that I think about it, where it's a lot of times people who are, I guess, you know, sometimes unintentionally when people are in their, in their silos thinking about, here's what I need to do with this group of students that's in front of me, whether it's the whole classroom or whether it is, a special service provider like SLP, social worker, psychologist, or, you know, somebody who's, who's working with kids in a smaller group setting where you wonder just why the, you know, why the principals are making decisions that they are, or why just, just how it all trickles down and affects each other. And, um, I think that sometimes that can be really hard when you are just focused on, this is what's going on in front of me and to realize that, wow, like there's so much, there's so much going on and there's so many moving parts that are impacting how the leaders are making their decisions. Were there any things that went, that made more sense for you once you got into that role where it was like, Oh, this is why they do what they do. (laughs) Yeah. I think you, when you become an administrator, you see all these different forces pushing and pulling in different directions, you know, federal mandates, state mandates, school district mandates, superintendent mandates, parent and community uh, beliefs, and all of that kind of has to get filtered through the the leader of the building and then comes out as, you know, new initiatives, new programs, new focus, new curriculum, um, And as a teacher, you're really, especially if you have a good building administrator, you're really isolated from that. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of assume like, oh, this is the principal's thing that he he or she's making us do. But when you become the administrator and you get those emails and go to those meetings and, and hear about all those competing interests and mandates, um, that, that made a lot more sense where it's like, oh, that's why sometimes principals feel like they're switching directions or, oh, a new school year, a new shiny um, object thing, you know? Yeah. that That's what makes it difficult, I think, to have consistency in a school is year after year, those, those mandates can change and priorities can change at levels higher than just the, the principal's office. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that made a little bit more sense to me. And it also, made me really empathize with past principals. Like, oh boy, this is tough. You can't just tell teachers every time you get an email, we're doing this, we're doing this. You have to kind of filter out and 
really, I, I think about good principals do two things. They wear a bulletproof vest and try and protect teachers from some of those mm-hmm. shots that especially yeah. recently people take at educators and keep that off of their plate. And the other thing is try and remove some obstacles that are in the way of good teachers that are trying to do things, whether it's funding or policies or time in the day, um, just get out of, get out of the good teacher's way and, and let them work their magic and help them solve problems that are, that are holding them back. Yeah. I think that that was one of the the building principles that I worked with for actually the, the person who hired me for my job that I had as an SLP for 14 years was really good at that, especially the, you know, being the shield, there were so many times when teachers needed support, like a parent was making, asking them to do things that weren't reasonable, and they were getting bullied, and she would just, yeah, I mean, literally, it was so many meetings where she would let the parents just, or whoever was, just, she would take it if they would say things to her that weren't very nice, but the minute they started saying anything to the teachers, it was like, hey, you don't, you don't talk to my staff that way. Mm -hmm. And this is just setting boundaries and, and again, kind of being the buffer so that the teachers could do their jobs. And then, and then also just that what she was really good at was empowering people and letting them do their thing when she knew that they knew what they were doing. I always really appreciated that about administrators who would, like you said, get out of the way (laughs) Mm -hmm. when, when people knew what they were doing. So on that note, I know that something we wanted to talk about today was employee evaluations. Uh, Obviously, just as you mentioned before, when you're starting to see all these different things going on, part of your job is to coach and mentor and make sure that there are good teaching and just overall practices going on in the building. This makes me think of a while ago, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was on, you know, scrolling Facebook and, you know, people love to share their opinions about whatever. (laughs) A person who was not in education said something like, instead of students being graded, teachers should be graded. And so then, you know, the comment section just was you know, off the rails, people saying all kinds of things like, yeah, all teachers care about is standardized testing, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, so the teacher bashing ensued. And, you know, I'm just, of course, I had to take the bait and share my thoughts on that, even though that was literally the intention of the post. But, but yeah, my thought is they are graded. They're called employee evaluations and they take up a ton of time and your job depends on it. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyways, I, I just thought that was really ironic that, you know, <laughs> people don't really fully understand why teachers, principals are emphasizing the things that they are, as you said, they're getting all do kinds you, of pressure. <laughs> do you think, Karen, do people like that, do they just not understand that teachers and employees have evaluations or is it more of like, oh, well, they have tenure in education, so they can't be fired no matter how bad they are kind of thinking. Some people do think that, um, but some people just really don't understand how much time it takes to do evaluations. I remember, and I don't know, um, I wanted to ask you about what uh, what framework you use to to do evaluations, but I remember we were using the Danielson framework, and when that came about, it was like, I mean, it was really, I remember the building principles that was almost, you know, like all of their time for a while that they were spending learning that framework. And it was just um, like for the special ed people, a lot of times we, you know, our, our Achilles heel is IEPs. And it seemed like the principles version of that was these learning this evaluation paperwork. Not that it's, you know, a bad thing, obviously it's a really important part of your job, but, but just the time that it takes. So I think that people don't really understand what goes into the evaluations. Um, yeah, I mean, they really just, it is a pretty um, complicated system. I think people don't really understand how it works. I mean, just like anything, if you're not involved with something, how would you know? You're only seeing the outside. So yeah, anyways, um, on that note, um, I am curious when 
Well, I guess first off, like what what framework do you use when you're doing your staff evaluations? Yeah, I've used a few different ones. Um, the Danielson model is is pretty cumbersome. I don't remember yeah. exactly how many indicators, but I want to say 64. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you do the domains and subdomains. And ironically, I believe when Charlotte Danielson came up with that, she also made it clear it wasn't intended to be a teacher evaluation tool. But here we are, you know, it's definitely one of the top two most commonly used um, evaluation tools. But it's it's just too too specific. I feel like if you're trying to give feedback to anyone based on that many indicators, um, it'd be like sitting down with a student and and giving them feedback on sixty different parts of their their language arts skills all at once in one meeting. It's it's too much. Um, I've I've had a lot of experience with McCrell, and they have a couple different evaluation frameworks. The one I used the most was called the QCUES um, model, which was also really specific, but not as exhaustive of a list of things to score and give feedback on. And then the state of Wyoming, I want to say four years ago, made some legislative changes to teacher evaluation systems and allowed schools to come up with their own model. So you could use a research-based framework like Danielson or McCrell, but what a lot of districts did is they simplified their evaluation tool and aligned it to some of the same domains, you know, classroom environment, communication, professionalism, um, things like that. But we um, at my prior district and then also in my current district where I've only been um, for one year, we use kind of a self-generated model that's much simpler. It has four domains and four subdomains, so 16 different in- indicators. And those can be a lot more effective if, you know, they're developed at the local level and teachers are involved in mm-hmm. what that looks like. And then you can do the same thing with your other professional staff, like counselors, therapists, nurses, um, OT, PT, SLP, all of those job descriptions and evaluations can kind of be molded into what you want for your district and what the role looks like in your unique community, your unique school, Um, because I think those are very different depending on just the size and demographics and, and a lot of those positions in a small school or district, you're, you're kind of a one person um department yeah really. absolutely so yeah i've used used a few different ones and I, I i can say you know if there was one great evaluation tool we would all be using it but there definitely isn't one great one mm-hmm. out there that i've seen yeah that is a good point that if you throw too much information at people they're not going to change anything it's just going to be Let's get through the paperwork so we can all get back to work. It's not going to be let me sit and reflect and focus on one thing I can change rather than just, you know, being bombarded. It definitely feels like that sometimes when you have a process that's too cumbersome. I wanted to take a quick break here and mention one of my free trainings that's going to help you be a leader regardless of what your job title is. One of the themes that comes up in this interview is the idea of having a growth mindset. This is really important to have as someone working with kids. It's also something that's really important to instill in your classroom or your therapy sessions so that you can teach kids to not just know how to problem solve, but also to have that mental flexibility and understand that just because you can't do something now, it doesn't mean that you can't improve your skills. To be able to do that, you have to be able to read situations and know how to problem solve on the spot. And you also have to be willing to work through learning curves. All of these things can be enhanced by having strong executive functioning skills. 
many times when students struggle with challenges and we see behaviors in the classrooms or we see them having a difficult time functioning in social situations, it ties back to executive functioning. That's why it's so important to instill this across the day in a school setting. And this could be a bigger, broader leadership initiative. So that's why I created a free training for educators and clinicians to show you how to put executive functioning supports in place and also share why some of the models being used in the school systems aren't working as effectively as they could. So to learn more about that free training, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EFleadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EFleadership. Now, let's get back to the interview. So you mentioned the just the idea that there are so many different areas that where you have to provide mentorship, coaching and and you know, legally and compliance wise, you have to be mm-hmm. the one that's evaluating the everyone that is reporting to you. So how do you, as a principal, do that when you have one specific or just a couple specific areas that were your subject matter expertise? How do you approach that when you have to be responsible for a whole bunch of different, co- not just content areas, but roles like in therapists and other disciplines? Yeah, that was hard when I became an administrator in the district I taught in because people really reminded me, well, this is different than what you taught. Yeah. You know, I remember being in like a woodshop teacher's classroom and he's like, well, you know, this is different than those core subjects, English and mm-hmm. and social studies that you taught. Um, so that's been easier because where I'm at now, people don't even, I've told them, but they don't really think of me as a classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the way that I do that and it, it's difficult because it's, it can be overwhelming And I also, if I can go back to one of our first topics, I realized when I became an administrator, how difficult it is to give good feedback to individual staff because you're doing so many evaluations. And um, I did the math with Jethro, who who does the Transforming Principal podcast. Um, we, We did the math on the number of evaluation things I have to do per employee. I would have to do one evaluation more than one per day of the school year. Wow. Well, no wonder I feel rushed and I feel like, boy, I'm not given as good a feedback as I could. And that made me empathize with my prior principals. I felt like, you know, they'd come in and observe and give kind of generic feedback sometimes. Well, no wonder they had four more to do that week. Um, You know, and, and, the perspective is a lot bigger than just the one, the one teacher. So I think about, I guess my personal philosophy on good instruction when I'm in a classroom and that's how I give feedback. I look at what is the biggest thing getting in the way of, of student learning. And then that usually fits whatever model or evaluation tool we're using. If it's, you know, a classroom management practice, um, Harry Wong, you know, first day of school's routine and procedures. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's easy to see some of those practices that are missing or could be could be improved and focus my my feedback that way. I've also learned that a lot of times when you go in and observe teachers or other um, certified staff, just asking them, what do you want me to focus my feedback on? They have they have things that they've already been trying or, or working on that, that they can help the administrator keep a focus when they're, when they're given feedback or when they're in observing or when they're doing their evaluation, their formal evaluation, just ask the staff, what do you want help with? Um, how can I support you? What do you want me to look for? And a lot of times the staff members can, can make that easy to take the huge form and really focus down on what we're going to talk about and discuss and try and improve. Yeah. Do you find that people are able to spot, I mean, obviously if it's a blind spot that you're not seeing, then, then you don't see it. I mean, that's literally the Mm -hmm. whole, (laughs) the concept that you don't realize that there's this thing over here that's impacting 
you know, maybe you think that the solution is here or the problem is here, but it's really something else. How often do you find that people are able to at least funnel in to the general area where they they need to improve? I've found that it really comes down to their mindset. If they're open to feedback and they have a growth mindset, no matter how many years experience or what their background is, it'll go it'll go a lot better for them and also for for me when we're when we're trying new things or giving feedback or trying to find blind spots. But the the teachers I've worked with, the few teachers I've worked with that have a really fixed mindset that this is how I teach. I've always taught that way. And until the day I retire, I'll continue to teach that way. It doesn't really matter what kind of feedback I give or even showing them examples or going and observing peers that do something that would really help them improve. If they have a fixed mindset, it's not going to change their practice. Yeah. How often do you, how do you deal with that as an administrator? I mean, is it, do you have to just decide what your non-negotiables are for professionalism? Yeah. I've told teachers my bottom line when it, you know, the most important decision we make is to recommend renewal of your contract. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's something that I don't, I don't decide on a whim and I don't take lightly. That's, that's a really big responsibility. And if I'm ever going to let someone know that they're not going to be recommended for renewal, I want to be confident that I've done everything I can to help them improve because usually, you know, improving the teachers you have is, is better for you and the teacher and the school than finding better teachers. Mm-hmm. So my real number one and only non-negotiable is are are you open to feedback? Because as long as someone's open to feedback, they're always going to get better. Yeah. And that to me is what it comes down to. If you're going to come back and keep working in our school, are you are you open to feedback because you want to get better? And even if they're brand new and really unprepared and missing a lot of basic skills and knowledge that they need to do their job, growth mindset can make up for that in a hurry. And within, you know, two, three, four, five years, they can become a really proficient teacher and do great things for kids. Mm -hmm. So I've only really worked with, I would say, three teachers that no matter what I did would not be open to feedback Um, one resigned the day it was announced that I was going to become the principal. Mm -hmm. And so that was pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) I had been the assistant principal and the day the district said, Eric's going to be the new principal. She resigned. Um, and I think kind of thought I'd be upset or, you know, the outgoing principal asked me, geez, what are you going to do? That teacher just resigned. I said, I know it's a Wednesday, but I'm going to go home and have a beer and celebrate because <laughs> one real resistant yeah. teacher that did not want to improve and didn't want to work with me or colleagues is gone. That's a, that's a, that's a win. win. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, if they end up being that real negative, I'm not going to do anything you ask me and I'm going to dig my heels in and be resistant. They're also usually toxic and hurt the culture of your school. Yeah. So if you have someone like that who isn't doing good things for kids and is pulling down colleagues, that's where, you know, your, your real stick as a principal as well. You're going to go on a plan of improvement and you're either going to follow it and get better or you're not going to be here. Yeah. Do you ever have situations where the teacher is already tenured and they're maybe just for some reason flew under the radar because they moved around or, I mean, how often is, how hard is it to address it when, when that's the situation? It does make it more difficult. The analogy I use is, you know, a non-tenured teacher is like a girlfriend, a Mm -hmm. tenured teacher is like a wife. And okay. so yeah. to, to find a new girlfriend is easy. Hey, this isn't working out. Um, we're going to go a different direction. Whereas a tenured teacher, you got to have the divorce lawyers and you got to go through counseling and you got to mm-hmm. follow a lot more, a lot more rules. I would say the number one reason teachers end up tenured that shouldn't be isn't because they fly under the radar or because they've moved around, it's because administrators have moved around. Ah, that's interesting. 
So when you have, you know, most states, it's your fourth year, you become tenured, I believe. Is that what you guys are? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So Wyoming, we have a lot less protection as far as tenure um, than many states do. But let's say you teach for three years in a, or two years in a district and then your principal leaves or your evaluator leaves and you have a new one who is learning a ton. Maybe it's their first administrative job and they're not in your classroom and they're not giving you good feedback. Well, boom, you get tenured, not because you earned it, but because the new administrator was preoccupied and in survival mode themselves. And then you add up, you know, the average principal Tenure, I believe the last time I saw it was like 3.2 years. Well, wow. you're not even getting tenure from your same principal. In a lot of cases, you'll have two different or three different administrators that you end up by default getting tenured because they weren't in your classroom. They didn't give you good feedback. They had maybe other staff members that were doing unprofessional things that took up the evaluator's time, the principal's time, so much so that they didn't even see you teach much. Um, so that that's definitely a problem. I know the first principal I had as a teacher, uh, him and I have stayed in touch, and I don't know why, but one day I asked him, you know, he had a great career and he's accomplished a lot of things. I said, what's your biggest regret? And that was his biggest regret was one specific teacher that his first year as the administrator got tenure and he said, I never should have renewed that teacher's contract because now until that teacher retires, administrators are going to have an ineffective teacher that I allowed to get tenure and I should not have done that. And I regret that. And that's, that's pretty common. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I think that's why a lot of teachers end up in that situation is because of us as principals. I didn't realize that the average stay for a principal was was only three and a half years. I guess I guess it kind of depends on the district and the community and how many schools you've been in. But yeah, that's really interesting that the how much principals do end up moving around because of various reasons. I mean, why is that? Is it because they want to get experience in different places? Is it because they don't like the job that they're in? I mean, why is there such a, so much movement there? Yeah, I think, first of all, they have less protection. Mm. You know, principals aren't tenured and they're not getting multi-year contracts. So that makes it difficult to have longevity if you're feeling like you're always at the mercy of the superintendent who also doesn't have much of a lifespan right now. You know, it's even worse for superintendents. And then, you know, the politics at the district level with school board elections, two, three new seats on a school board open up and people run based on a few beliefs that have nothing to do with educating children. And all of a sudden um, you have a new superintendent, you have a new principal, you have a new special ed director, a new curriculum director, um, just because of changes at the board level or the soup level. So I did, I just think some of it is there's not a lot of job security. Um, also some of it I know, and I've heard from people, Oh, are you in this district to get experience and move up? There's definitely some people that do that. Um, but I wouldn't say there's as many as you would you would think. I mean, who who really would want to take a job for two years and then start over, yeah. move your family? Um, it just I don't I don't think there's really that many administrators that are trying to climb climb the ladder as as teachers think. Yeah, well, and I I think people don't realize that that there isn't as much security. They don't realize the the impact of the board and all those things that you just mentioned that again, they're, we're kind of buffered from that because it's, it's part of your job to take that information in and then use it to lead your building. And I think that that's, you know, everybody has something that, that they're dealing with that people that are in different positions or at different levels don't realize. So as a principal, did you find when you were, you have all these different content areas that you're, that you have to, where you have to provide feedback and 
when you took some of those principles, like you said, having a growth mindset or just basic understanding of instructional practices and things like that, did you find that that translated to other positions? Like, for example, the school nurse or an occupational therapist, was there a parallel with that too? Were you able to take some of that from evaluating teachers to also evaluating those other staff? Yeah, because I think a lot of those other staff are are in support roles and a lot of what they do and honestly how I see them working as as a member of a team. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, you know, IEP meetings or um, MTSS meetings or student support meetings. Um, and you can kind of see how do they work with classroom teachers? How do they work with administrators? How do they work with parents? How do they work with case managers, the special ed director, the other support uh, professionals that are on the student's team? And so you can you can see how they work effectively with others and you can see in a hurry, um, you know, they make it easy for teachers to understand and implement things and be a part of the team conversation. Or, um, you know, I think of one, one professional service provider I worked with that was really difficult for the team to work with because this person felt like, well, I have all the answers and if you would just do this, the kid would be fine, but you guys won't do what I want you to do. And and it's pretty easy to see like, oh, oh, you may know your stuff and you may be dead on with, you know, what you want us to implement. But if you can't work with people on the team, you're not going to help the kid. Yeah. So that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy to see because those positions don't really work in isolation. So it's just a matter of how do they work with the team and you know, a lot of times they're the expert. They know their area way more than the teacher and definitely the principal do unless they've been a counselor or, or professional, which very few of us have been. I don't know of many that have that background. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important because sometimes, you know, I know that sometimes people feel like, well, they, you know, I have all this training and expertise And sometimes people in that position, like, you know, SLPs, for example, I can give that from personal experience where a lot of our training is more medical. And then we have to come in and figure out how it works in the schools. And it feels a little bit like, you know, like it doesn't quite fit. Mm -hmm. And, and we have to figure out how to translate it to the school setting. And So a lot of times it's, you do go in thinking, wow, I had all of these classes and I know that these other people didn't have all of this other training, but at the same time, recognizing that they also have a lot of training that you don't have and that maybe there's a reason that they're not implementing it in their classroom or, um, you know, maybe opened your feedback or whatever it is. I think the teaming aspect is really important because... As you said, otherwise it becomes siloed off and it, it you won't get anything done. Yeah. 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 The other the other thing that's helped because I've never well, honestly, my first year as an administrator, I think I told you the other day, Karen, um, someone said, Hey, don't forget you gotta do the nurses evaluation. Yeah. I thought they were joking. Uh-huh. I was like, wait, principals evaluate nurses? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have no idea like what kind of feedback to give a, a school nurse, but um, similar to teachers, especially master teachers, experienced teachers, just asking those other professional service providers, you know, what do you want help with? What do you need from me? What are you already doing that I could help you with feedback around or even having like a self-evaluation tool or a professional growth goal. That has helped me a lot because, you know, like the counselor will say, well, this is what I'm working on and one of my focuses this year. And then I know I can use that to focus my feedback and evaluation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise there's, there's going to be a long list of things on their evaluation that you really don't know where, where they're at because you're not sitting in their office and, you know, literally observing how they work with students um, or even in all the meetings. Like I had a 
a new school nurse this year and she asked me, she said, hey, I was looking in the evaluation program and it says you have to do a formal observation. Are you going to come like take notes in the nurse's office for a period? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, no, no, your yours will be a little different than like a, a teacher observation. I'm not going to just come take notes and watch you interact with kids that are puking and have a fever and need an ice pack <laughs> and things like that. So yeah. We also, I've learned, we don't do a very good job explaining that to um, people when they're new to education. Like if they've been an OT in the medical field and are now yeah. joining a school position, we don't explain a lot of those things like evaluations because they're very different than they look in other professional settings. Yeah, they definitely are. And I think that sometimes there's, it depends on the role. I mean, if you are someone like like I would do, we would actually do the evaluations very similar to the teachers if for the for the SLPs because they could come in and observe a session with a student because we're providing therapy. It wasn't mm-hmm. like the nurse where the nurse doesn't really have sessions with kids. They have, um, you know, specific medical things that come out throughout the day. And a lot of times they don't even really have appointments, you know, I mean, sometimes if kids need certain medical treatments, it has to be provided at certain times, but, but yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more like the teacher evaluations, but it was still, you still had to kind of translate it where it's, well, we don't write lesson plans. We do IEPs and we do IEP goals. And so it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to do the lesson plan exactly like the teacher. And I always appreciated when the administrator was understood that. I think the other thing is just as a person who knows this person is evaluating me, they have a different background than me, having the self-awareness to understand what can I get from this person? Like I wouldn't ask my principal for feedback on something that was a very specific protocol specific to my profession, but maybe I could ask them for feedback on how well did I explain that during the IEP meeting or something like that? I think that self-awareness piece of this is useful information that I could get from this person. And maybe I can go somewhere else to get information from somebody more specific. Like I can ask a peer to come in and observe me or something like that if I wanted above and beyond. Do you feel like, I mean, how do you model that self-awareness of knowing what to ask and where to get feedback? Yeah, that's a great point. And if it makes you feel better, I wish teachers realized, you know, because you hear from teachers, well, you've only been in my class, you know, 10 times this year, or you've only stayed more than five minutes twice this year. Well, how do you think principals feel when they have their evaluation done by a superintendent who's never been in a meeting with them all year? Yeah, it's like we we know the feeling and we're all we're we're all accustomed to that. That's just part of the process. So what I've told teachers, and I've been a little more upfront and repetitive with it this year, being new to the district is, hey, when I do evaluations, it doesn't matter who you are and what role you're in. These are, these are the consistent pieces that you're going to see from me. I want to give you a specific feedback on positive things that I see you doing for kids that are working well and specific feedback on things that I think you could do better. And it should be no more than three on either of those lists. Mm -hmm. But what it really comes down to when you sit down and do your evaluation, you're always filtering through the feedback you're getting like, oh, that's not true. Oh, no, I really do that. He just doesn't know I do. We, We all do that when we're getting feedback. So as long as you can say that you feel like, honestly, my evaluator cares about me as a person, and they're trying to help me get better, you can take things from that feedback and feel good when you walk out of the conversation. Because Mm -hmm. if you feel like they don't even know me, they don't even know what I do, they don't care about me, they don't even know my name, I've never seen this person, no no feedback they're going to give you is going to make a difference in your practice. And also, if you feel like they're out to get you, or they're not trying to help you, or they're just giving you really generic feedback and you know, acronyms that they heard um, from a book or some training or whatever, that's not going to help you get better either. But as long as you feel like they care about you as a person and they're trying to help you get better, it doesn't mean their feedback is dead on. 
and everything they tell you is exactly where you feel like you're at or the scores are where you would score yourself, but you can still walk out of there and feel like, yeah, that was productive and it was good to get feedback. Sadly, that might be the only feedback you get, um, especially classroom teachers. You might get a little feedback from kids or parents, but if you're not getting feedback from your building administrator, where are you getting it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is to me, the person who really just sees how you, how you interact as a person in that building on that team. So I know we've been talking for a while and I wanted to make sure that people knew where they could follow up and learn a little bit more about what you do. And also I know that you have a podcast where you dive into topics such as this one and other things that school leaders work with. So where can people learn more about how to connect with you? Yeah, the the podcast is the transformative principle. And technically I'm the guest host. So Jethro's done all the work and you know produced over five hundred episodes before I agreed to just temporarily host it. But it, it is a good one for for any educators and any kind of leadership role or aspiring leaders to follow and subscribe to um, all kinds of different topics on the show. And then as far as getting in touch with me, um, my Twitter handle is at E McKelkey and my last name is spelled M A K E L K Y. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Karen. Really appreciated the chance to talk evaluations with you today. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check out the Transformative Principle with Jethro Jones. And actually, Eric is hosting the Transformative Principle right now, as he said in the interview. One of the first episodes that I listened to on the Transformative Principle was an episode titled, What If They Don't Want Feedback? with Eric McKelkey and Jethro Jones. So this is a really interesting conversation about employee evaluations. I definitely recommend checking it out, as well as checking out some of the other episodes on the Transformative Principle. So be sure to check out the show notes for links to the Transformative Principle, as well as Eric's Twitter handle. And also, don't forget to check out my free executive functioning training for school clinicians and educators, where I share how to put executive functioning support in place so that students are supported socially, emotionally, and academically across their day. To check out the training, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash EF leadership. As always, if you have an idea for a great guest, or if you're interested in being a guest, then reach out to me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your colleagues or your friends. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. 
When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.